Good evening, everybody. Glad that you're here. If you'd open up a Bible to Titus, the first chapter. I'm going to read a few verses here in just a moment from Titus chapter 1 that will provide really the backdrop for all of the things that we're going to talk about and think about tonight from the Word of God. Uh, Tonight is Q&A night, but it is a special edition of Q&A as it intersects with our series of studies about local church leadership. If you are visiting with us, and several of you are, uh, the church here at Lakeside has been making a concerted effort for the past several months to not only study about uh, what the Bible says about shepherds over uh, a local flock, but we've been making efforts to try and find and think about men here who could serve in that role over this uh, local flock here. And tonight I am going to use our monthly Q&A session to just tidy up some questions, four questions in particular, that really maybe have not gotten addressed, or maybe have not gotten addressed as, as fully as I would have wanted to in some of the other lessons. And so uh, we're going to try to try to bang all of those out tonight. Uh, three of these are shorter than the other, and one is a little bit lengthier and will take up most of our time. But I want to just share some ideas tonight that I think are worthy of our consideration. And as I prefaced everything last Sunday night, I'm going to do it again tonight. I am not going to tell you what to think. Rather, I'm just going to tell you some stuff that I think is worth thinking about. And that's really going to be the goal this evening. It is great to see you tonight. So glad that you are here. Hope you've had a pleasant and enjoyable afternoon and appreciate so much that you're here tonight and that you've engaged in this period of worship, your participation in the songs and in the good prayer that Brandon led us in just a moment ago. Let's read together, if you will, in Titus chapter 1. Those of us that are here at Lakeside, we've read these verses a lot, so we're going to read them one more time. In Titus chapter 1, in verses 5 through 9, Paul says, For this reason, talking to Titus, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. As I said, I do have four questions for our consideration tonight. And I am going to start with that larger one, the lengthier one, and that question is this. Is a man disqualified from serving as an elder if he has an adult child who has fallen away? Now, I talked at length last Sunday night about the the family qualifications, and I did touch upon this question kind of briefly, but I did that with the promise that I would give it a little bit uh, further uh, time this evening. And I'm going to preface it with what I said last Sunday night. That what I'm about to share with you is my conviction. And that conviction is based upon my study of the Word of God and what I believe fits and harmonizes with the rest of Scripture and what I believe the purpose of these qualifications are for. And you may, as I said last week, you may disagree with what I'm about to say. All that I'll ask is that you just give a fair hearing just as I'm going to be willing to hear any kind of counter-thoughts and counter-ideas that you may have as well. Is a man disqualified from serving as an elder if he has an adult child who has fallen away? My answer to that question is 
Not necessarily. And here is why I arrive at that conclusion. And by the way, if you're a note taker, once again, all that's going to be on the screen tonight is just the questions, not putting any of my thoughts and ideas up there. Don't want that to come across as being some kind of authoritative, you have to believe this and you have to see it exactly my way. Simply going to just have you listen tonight, if you will. The first thing that I would just have you to consider about that is this. Was God to blame for Israel's many apostasies? That's maybe where I would start. I would just maybe kind of just start back at the beginning of the Bible. Let's go back to the Old Testament. If you study through the Old Testament, there were, of course, many times when the Israelites were unfaithful to the Lord. And so I'll ask, is God to blame for that? Now, our initial reaction, of course, is to say, well, well, absolutely not. God is not to blame for that. And yet, in Malachi chapter 1 and in verse 6 and other passages as well, God identifies Himself as the Father of Israel. And to the Israelite people, He viewed Himself as their Father, and He wanted them to see Him in that same way, that you are my children, the children of Israel. And so, were the Israelites always faithful to God, their Father? You start kind of cataloging. Well, did a lot of murmuring in the wilderness. That was a big problem. They made a big golden calf right there at Mount Sinai. That was a big problem. There was the entire Wild West period of the judges. That was a problem. There was the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. Those were the result of just bad behavior, unfaithfulness on their part. There were long stretches in Israel's history where they were completely unfaithful to the Lord. Totally turned away, serving idols, serving false gods. Now, I'll ask it one more time, and I'll ask it a little bit differently. Was their bad behavior a reflection upon God? That somehow, God, God, you must have messed up in how you fathered these children. God, you must have done something wrong for them to go off and do the things that they are doing. Well, the answer is, is no. Of course not. God is a perfect father, right? No doubt about that. God is absolutely perfect in how He fathers and sets forth a model and a template for what a father ought to be. He is perfect in His wisdom. He's perfect in His love. He's perfect in His instruction. He's perfect in all of the execution of what it is to be a father. God is the perfect father. And so, if there is a failure... In how those children turn out, if there's some kind of a failure in this father-children relationship, then the breakdown has to be on the other end of that equation. And of course, that still holds true even for us today, doesn't it? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 that God is our Father. He wasn't just the Father of the Israelites. He is our Father. That we can call upon Him as our Father in heaven. And He views us as His children, His sons and His daughters. Well, what happens today? What happens if a brother or a sister in Christ forsakes the Lord, falls into apostasy, goes right back into the world just living in sin once again? Is that a reflection on God's character? That God somehow failed in some way? You know, God, I tell you what, if you'd just been a better father to that brother or that sister, well, well, maybe they wouldn't have fallen away. Of course not. God is the model parent. And the failures of His children, and there are many, and of course if we're all being honest, we recognize our own failures toward Him. The failures of God's children are independent 
of God's ability to father us in a righteous manner. And we understand about that. And I think that there's just no doubt about that. We get that. And so here's my question for us tonight. Why is it? Why is it that we then turn around and we look at imperfect fathers who have made mistakes and who I think would freely admit that they cannot father nearly as well or as perfectly as God does, why do we didn't point the finger at them as if they are somehow automatically to blame for the shortcomings of their children? Why do we hold that kind of standard for human, imperfect fathers, but we don't hold God to that standard who is perfect? I must tell you, that that's an inconsistency that is somewhat troubling to me. Because sometimes what happens is, is we end up laying a burden of guilt. And we end up impugning the character of a father or also maybe even a mother who have done the very best that they possibly can do in raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord when at the end of the day, that child has made the decision for themselves as to whether or not they're going to serve the Lord. In fact, I think I preached on that this morning, didn't I? That every person has to choose for themselves. That's that, that's that free will thing. And just as free will demands that we must make our own choices, free will also demands that we bear responsibility for our own choices. Ezekiel 18, amongst other places, makes that point. The question is... Do we believe that? To what extent do we believe that? You know, I'm concerned that sometimes the way that we talk about this subject, at least in relation to elders and their children, or potential elder candidates and their children, is that we almost give the impression, and probably not intentionally, but we almost give the impression that the father does bear the iniquity of the son. And that obviously is not an idea that any of us want to be conveying or suggesting in any way. Can I maybe just direct your attention to a couple of biblical examples that really kind of maybe help us put a face to all of these ideas? Would you find the book of 1 Samuel, please? In 1 Samuel, let's just talk about a couple of real people. Let's talk about two fathers. And let's place them under the microscope. Both of these men were in positions in offices of leadership amongst the people of God. And so there's even some parallel here to the idea of a man who's serving as an elder in that office. But the similarity in both of these men's cases is that both of them had rebellious, unfaithful children. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 is the first of those. Do you remember the story of Eli? Eli was the high priest in Israel. And his sons were wicked. In fact, that's probably an understatement. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 2 says that they were worthless men. Corrupt men who did not know the Lord. In verse 22 though, Eli makes, well, Eli makes kind of a token effort to try and rebuke them. And so we read in 1 Samuel 2 and in verse 22, Now Eli was very old. And he heard everything that his sons did to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. 
If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. Now, if you keep on reading on down through the end of chapter 2, what you will find is that God ends up stripping the priesthood away from Eli. Takes it away from his family entirely. Ends up having both of his sons being put to death. And then in chapter 4, Eli himself also dies, really in kind of a tragic fashion. Now, I want you to hold the example of Eli. Hold that thought in your mind for a moment. And now jump over to chapter 8. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, there we read about another guy. This is Samuel. This is the guy who the book bears his name. We all know about Samuel. Samuel's a great guy. Here's the guy who was a judge in Israel. He is a prophet for the Lord. But unfortunately, he's got a couple of sons who are 'er ne'er-do-wells also. They are scoundrels and scallywags and rogues. And so we read about them in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and in verse 3. But Samuel's sons, they did not walk in his ways. That is, they didn't walk in the same ways that Samuel did, trying to be a servant of the Lord. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Look, you are old. and Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. What the people came recognizing was, Samuel, when you're gone, we don't want these guys leading us anymore. And so what do we have here in these two particular cases? Well, what we have, we have two fathers, Eli and Samuel, both of whom have unfaithful children. Eli is judged by God. And his position of leadership, it is taken away from him. Whereas Samuel, Samuel is not judged in that way. In fact, what you read there about Samuel's kids in those verses we just read, that's it. That's all that's said about that. Samuel remains on as the judge. He's the final judge in Israel. And then even once Israel anoints a king, he then shifts into a role of serving as a prophet and really as kind of a confidant for for, uh, Saul and then even for David kind of in some ways. Now, I look at those two scenarios. Similar, but then completely different outcomes. What's the difference? The only conclusion that I can come to in how God dealt with those two men differently is that God held Eli culpable. God held him guilty for his failings as a father. Eli's rebukes were a day late and a dollar short. Eli did not do a good job in fathering his sons while he had the opportunity to do so. Whereas Samuel, on the other hand, I get the impression that he did the best that he could. And I believe that God saw that. And God did not see his wicked sons as being somehow a reflection upon Samuel's character as a father. I believe Samuel did everything that he could to rear these boys and to raise them in the way that they ought to go while they were under his oversight, which is why God did not judge him in the same way that he did Eli. Which brings me now to what I believe is really kind of just the heart of the issue. And that is the word house. Would you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 now? That's that other passage that provides for us the qualifications for an elder. In Paul's letter to Timothy, talked already about Joshua's house this morning, but in Paul's instructions to Timothy, he says some things about a man's house. And it is my conviction 
that the area in which a man is to be judged regarding the faithfulness of his children, however you want to define that term faithful, I believe the arena in which he is to be judged is when his children are in his home. And I believe that because I believe that's what 1 Timothy 3 says. In 1 Timothy 3, look in verse 4. In 1 Timothy 3 and in verse 4, there Paul says to Timothy, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church or the household of God? I am persuaded that Paul is saying that you need to look at how that man's children obey him, how they respect him, how they follow their father's leadership while they are under his care, while they are under his charge. That these ones, these children, whom he has a daily influence over, these ones who see his example day after day, they hear his instructions, they are around him regularly, they are able to observe his character really in ways that All of the rest of us don't get to. They're getting to see Him, you know, on a day-to-day, 24-hour-a-day sort of basis. Kids get to see that. They get to see whether Dad is serious in His role as a father or whether Dad's just a big old hypocrite. They get to see whether Dad is patient and loving and kind and all these things or whether He's just the opposite of all that. And so while these children are in his home, under his direct control, his direct supervision, the question is, how do they respond to his leadership? Does this man do the Joshua 24, 15 thing? This is a man who lives that passage. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. That's what we are about in this household. And as a result, his kids then, they then live with that in view. They understand that their job, while they are under his charge, is to toe the line. We're going to do what our Father says. We respect him. We are submissive. We're the things that Paul says here to Timothy. Somebody would maybe say, well, what about, what about when a child grows up? What about when they move out of the home? Are they, are they still under the oversight of their father? Well, I think Genesis 2 answers that, doesn't it? All the way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, we read this verse all the time. Whenever we talk about marriage, heard it read at wedding ceremonies. What's Genesis 2 saying? Genesis 2 verse 24. Genesis 2 verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Therefore, a man shall what? Leave. He leaves father and mother. That's God's design. God's design is that children will reach a point in their lives where they will then leave the protection and the oversight and the supervision of their parents and they will then establish their own home. They'll establish their own family if they so choose. Now, that certainly does not negate that child's obligations to continue to do other things that God says we ought to do to our parents. You're going to continue to honor our parents. That lasts for. All of life. That's not just something you do as a kid. But always honor our parents. You're going to take care of them in their old age. That's a responsibility that even an adult child has. But there comes a time when a child becomes their own man or their own woman. And now it is time for them to make their own decisions. And our hope, our desire, is that they will then develop their own faith and they will then serve the Lord. That's what we want. And in an ideal world, that's the way that it would be. In an ideal world, every child who grows up in a Christian home and receives proper mothering and fathering like the Bible instructs, 
that when they reach that point, the Genesis 2 point, that they will then strike out on their own and they will make that good decision to serve the Lord and to serve Him all the days of their life. That's what we all want. And that's what we're all striving for. But here's what we do. And this is, again, another one of those inconsistencies that that troubles me and concerns me. And I think it sends mixed messages. That if a child receives that kind of proper parenting while they are in the home of their mother and their father, and they then grow up, get out on their own, and at some point they then decide that they're going to leave the Lord. They're going to depart from everything that they have been taught and everything that they have known ever since they were children. What do we then say to parents about that? Well, I'll tell you what I hear most commonly. What we say is we say, you did the best that you could. Isn't that what we say a lot? You did the best that you could. When it's somebody that we know, that they did, they did the best that they could. We affirm them in that. You did. You did the absolute best that you could do. And yet for some reason, when a man then seeks to be an elder, we suddenly say, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Your child fell away. That's on you, buddy. That's your fault now. And I think that's inconsistent. And I think that that's something that needs to be addressed. I think that's something that maybe we want to find some kind of better consistency about that. Now, this is really where my initial answer of not necessarily comes into play when you look at that question. And that is because sometimes a man can be at fault. It may be that his child is away from the Lord and they're living in sin and they're living in rebellion. You know what? It is dad's fault. Maybe he was not the spiritual leader that he should have been. Maybe, in fact, he wasn't even at home an awful lot. Maybe he was off working all the time. And so mama was left with the job of the spiritual training and instruction of that child. And then when the kids finally reached an age where they could be on their own, they resented dad for that. And so they just left. They just quit. I don't care about Jesus anymore. And so maybe the father does bear some blame for how his kids turn out. We've already seen that in the case of Eli. And so a man who desires to be an elder, I believe, he needs to honestly examine himself before he even allows his name to be put forward before the congregation. Men, search within yourself. Am I confident and sure I did do everything that I could, did the best that I could with my kids to raise them up in the right kind of way? Whether your kids are faithful Christians or whether they're not faithful Christians, did you take your job as a spiritual leader Did you take that seriously? If you didn't take that job seriously, then that is on you. And that's something you'll have to answer for someday. But if you did do the best that you could do, then I believe that we still kind of just wind up in the same place where we wound up at the end of last week's lesson. And that is that each of us is going to have to look at these character qualities in Titus and in Timothy. And we're going to then have to look at each man individually that might be considered for this work. And then each one of us is going to have to make a judgment call about that. And for what I've been able to observe of looking at this man's life, I've been able to be around him for a certain number of years, and I've got to observe and know certain things about him, got to spend time with him, maybe on a personal level, and kind of find out more deeply who he is. Has he been able to demonstrate the ability to lead his family and so prove himself to be fit of leading God's family? That's the question we need to ask, I believe. And so, if I am asked, and I was, is it possible for a man who has an unfaithful adult child to still be qualified and serve as an elder? Then for me, 
The answer is yes, it is possible. doesn't mean that that's the case for every man, but I believe that it is possible. In fact, as I mentioned last Sunday night, when I'm looking at a man, and maybe he does have a child who is away from God, what I'm really interested in now, okay, I'm settled, I know that he raised this child right. Maybe he's got other kids, and it's pretty clear. He would have done the same thing with them as he did with these kids. He's done something right there. If he's got this unfaithful kid, what I really want to know now is I want to know what's his relationship like with that erring child? Is he handling that wayward sheep the way a shepherd would handle a wayward sheep? If he just accepts that child in their sin, as if nothing has even changed, as if everything is just fine, everything's the same today as it was yesterday, and they still get together for all the family gatherings and occasions, and just do that like everything's normal, and we don't ever say a word about the lost spiritual condition of this person, then that, that's a big problem. That's a big red flag. Because that man is not showing himself to have the character and the heart of a shepherd. But if on the other hand, if that man deals with that prodigal child in a way that demonstrates to him or to her that there has been a change in the relationship by virtue of how they chose to live their lives, hey, things can't be the same between us anymore. There needs to be some kind of a a, a divider here, a line drawn here. He does not let them think that they are okay. He earnestly pleads with them. He prays with them. He encourages them. He's constantly making efforts to rescue this sheep who has gone from the fold. Then I believe that a man like that, for me, is worthy of a second look. I know of a man who was serving as an elder. And one of his children, uh, later in life, they made the terrible decision to just quit serving the Lord. Stop being faithful to Jesus. and just, just went completely back into the world. Just a complete 180. Shortly thereafter, it wasn't like the day after, but a little bit of time had passed. Shortly thereafter, that man tearfully stepped down from his position as an elder in that church. And he did that not because he or the congregation believed that he was now disqualified. No, he stepped down because he believed that he as a father, what he needed to do was to go and pursue his sheep. That man realized that he needed to dedicate the time and the energy to trying to reach his erring child. And he realized that he would not be able to do that, at least not without having a divided mind, and be able to continue to serve in the local congregation, and as a result, probably neglect the local flock to some degree. He left to go after that child. Can I tell you something? That man may have resigned his title of shepherd, but in that moment, he was never more of a shepherd than by leaving the ninety and nine to go and rescue that one who had went astray. Now you take all of that tonight and put that with the stuff that I offered last Sunday and all I'll ask you to do is you just consider all that for yourself. And if you find that there's merit to any of the ideas that I've presented over the course of these last couple of lessons, then great, that'll be wonderful. But even if you disagree... All I'll ask that you do is that you do so respectfully and that you do so using the Scriptures because that's been what I've...
tempted to do this evening. Now, before I actually close out that question, can I make one final observation uh, that just needs to be said, and I really just believe there can be no disagreement about this at all. Sometimes, whenever we're talking about the various family things pertaining to an elder, and whether a man is qualified to serve or whether he's not because of maybe some things that might be lacking in his family, sometimes what gets forgotten in all of that discussion is just the very human element that is involved there. Do you know what I mean by that? What I mean by that is that sometimes we just get, we get so caught up in all the, the technicalities of the qualifications, we start parsing the Greek and doing all that, and that can be very helpful. I'm not opposed to that. But sometimes we can be just so intent because we've got to, to convince and make sure everybody else sees it exactly the way that I do. And we're talking about this guy, or we're talking about that guy, and we're using all kinds of illustrations from within the flock. And I say that as, that can go either way. doesn't matter what side of this issue that you're on. You can be either side of the fence on that. And as a result, we just end up forgetting That in the middle of all of that storm, in the middle of that discussion, who's there? Who's there in the middle of all that is a grieving mother and a grieving father. And I do not believe that we're trying to be insensitive to those people. I don't believe that we're just purposely trying to be offensive and trying to disregard their pain and the sorrow that they're dealing with, with this wayward child. Sometimes we're just not as careful as we ought to be. And I say that, I'll be the first person to raise my hand. I stick my foot in my mouth more than probably anybody in this room. We need to be more careful. We need to be more thoughtful. More compassionate. I am told by those. I've never experienced this myself. But I am told by those who have experienced this. That having a prodigal child is arguably the worst pain that any parent could ever possibly endure. My grandparents, I did get to witness them. And seeing the pain that they felt for the remaining years of their life, knowing that they had a son, my mom's brother, knowing that he was away from the Lord. He made the decision in his adult life, even he was serving as a deacon at that time, to not only forsake God, but to forsake his family, forsake his wife and to forsake his children and to live in sin. And I know that whenever I would talk to Manu and Papaw about my Uncle Sam, I could sense their pain. Every time they talked about that. So I have some sense of the pain that you endure. And I want to say to any of the parents that we have here in this room who fits that bill, anybody who has to bear that burden, and sometimes you feel like you're bearing that burden alone, what I pray for myself and for all of us is that God will help all of us together to bear that burden with you and to help you and to not be a source of stumbling or a cause of more pain in your life. Now, having dealt with that question, that's, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm really just done talking about this family stuff. Let me answer a couple of other questions that might be a little bit easier uh, to deal with, at least in time-wise. Number two, um, how old must a man be in order to serve as an elder? Well, in some ways, this is like asking, how old does a child need to be before they can become a Christian? What is the age of accountability? Well, with any of those questions, I can't point to a specific answer. The Bible doesn't give a specific age about that. You know, God is certainly capable of doing that. You think about in Paul's letter to Timothy when he talked about the widow indeed. 
God is very capable of specifying an age. When he talked about the widow indeed, she needed to be what? He's to be at least 60 years old. So God is, God is well able to specify an age if that is what he is looking for, a specific age. Now, obviously, when you just look at the term elder, at least as it's used in Titus chapter 1, 5 and in these other passages, it would seem to denote and suggest an older man. But even that, even that term older, even that's somewhat ambiguous. There's a little bit of subjectivity there. Because think about it, if a man maybe started his family at a, at a very young age, maybe he became a Christian at a relatively young age, maybe he kind of just grew up in the church, and he's very spiritually mature, he still may not have a lot of miles on his physical body from the sense of what we're looking at as far as looking for an age. He may not be what we would consider old, at least maybe compared to, to somebody else. Well, I, I don't believe that the Lord expects us to be looking for a certain age. Rather, what we need to be looking for is we need to be looking for a man who has attained to a certain level of spiritual maturity that is described when we look at these qualifications. And the truth is, if a man is going to meet all of those requirements in Titus and in Timothy, then that, that is going to take some time, isn't it? That's going to take a few years. How many exactly? I don't know. But we're going to have to decide. And in fact, I wanted to actually just include this question on the list tonight to really just illustrate once again that that... That's a judgment call. Most people get upset saying that you have to make a judgment call about some of these family things. Well, you have to make a judgment call about that. You're going to have to make a judgment call about all of these, or at least many of these things. You're going to have to use the wisdom and the guidance of Scripture to try to come to the best possible conclusion that we can. I would certainly, at least for me, I would certainly have concerns about anybody putting a man's name forward who is in his 20s or his 30s. But again, at the end of the day, it's still going to fall to the judgment of the members of the congregation. Thirdly, what is the ideal number of elders or an eldership? Well, once again, I like at least the continuity with all these questions is, I don't know. Because the Bible does not answer that specifically. The Bible doesn't give us some absolute answer about that. All the Bible tells us and what the Bible shows us is that there must be a plurality of elders. Acts 14.23, they appointed elders in every church. What we need is we need at least two in order to have an eldership. And certainly in some of the previous lessons and in the Wednesday night class, we've talked about the wisdom in God's design for there to be a multiplicity of men to serve in that way. That way there's not a a dictatorship. You don't have somebody that's just kind of having their way, one person just ruling over the congregation. And so certainly... What we're looking for is we're looking for a minimum of two qualified men. Now, having said that, I believe that three would be more preferable to two. That would help if you had three as opposed to two. That would maybe help to break any kind of a a stalemate or a tie when they're talking about certain decisions that have to be made. That would certainly help to distribute the workload amongst three men as opposed to just two men. And quite frankly, while I'm thinking about that, four or five, or six, that would be even better than two or three. As long as men are qualified and they're able to carry out the work, that's what matters most. However, I should say this, that does not in any way negate an eldership that is only made up of two men. The Lord should bless us here to have just two, and if all we had were two qualified and willing men to serve in this capacity, then I will gladly take those two men 
And I would then look forward to hopefully appointing even more men to serve in that role as time goes on. Now, this last question, I actually believe I'm going to table for another time. And the question was this, what should you do if a man is being considered to serve as an elder, but you have a concern about a particular qualification? Maybe it's on one of these family qualifications, deal with his marriage, or maybe it's something to do with his kids. Maybe it's something to do with something pertaining to uh, one of these other character things that Paul talks about in these passages. And that's an important question, and we need to be able to think about what we want to do if we find ourselves in that situation. And I'm going to save that, I'm going to save that for another lesson. I think that'll actually make a good kind of concluding thought to another lesson that I've got in mind that'll probably be on taps here in the next month. Those are things that we want to think about because we want to be able to submit to the men who will serve in that particular role. Now, just as was the case last week, once again, I find myself in the difficult position of trying to somehow segue from these thoughts about elders here in this local church and things we're discussing in-house to segue that into extending the invitation of the Lord. I will say this though, that last question really does have to do with the idea of being able to submit to these men and trust them and to follow their lead. And when we extend the invitation of Jesus Christ, that's what Jesus is inviting people to do. And that's what we're echoing in that invitation. It's an invitation to submit to the chief shepherd, to the good shepherd, to submit to him and to follow his lead. And here's the thing, here's what makes Jesus different than men. Jesus, you can be absolutely 110% certain that you can trust His leadership. There's never any doubts about Jesus' leadership. Jesus is never going to steer you wrong. Jesus is never going to do you wrong. Jesus is going to always do right by you, and Jesus is always going to be doing things to help lead you to heaven. The question is, will you surrender to Him? If you've never surrendered to Him in the waters of baptism, the water is ready, garments are ready, all things are ready tonight, for you to become a Christian, and you can begin serving the Lord as one of His children, as one of His sheep. If you are a child of God, but you maybe that submission thing has kind of waned and you've not been as faithful to Him as you should, then brother or sister, you need to rekindle that. You need to find that trust once again. and Give yourself fully to Him. If there's something you need to repent of, especially in a public way, then we stand ready to help you and pray for you and encourage you in whatever way that we can. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to make that known. Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.